The Bible reading today is found in Mark 4, 21 to 34. He said to them, Do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He said also, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows to become the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. There's a phrase that comes up 14 times in Mark's Gospel, and especially in the passage that we're looking at today, and that phrase is, the kingdom of God. Now, if someone were to ask you, what does that mean? How would you answer them? I mean, if you had to finish this sentence, the kingdom of God is, well, what would you say? The phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven comes up about a hundred times in the pages of the New Testament, most of the time on the lips of Jesus. But even though we'd say that as Christians we're part of that kingdom, are we really clear about what it means to be part of that kingdom? the shape that it takes, what it means for us to be citizens of that kingdom. In Mark's Gospel, the first words that we hear from Jesus are there in chapter 1, verse 15. If you've got a Bible, flip it back to there and have a look. It says this, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has now come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, don't be confused by come near. It's not as if Jesus is saying, well, it's somewhere around here, can anyone see it? It's not a hide-and-seek thing. He's not saying, keep looking, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. He's saying that the kingdom is right here in your midst, right here, right now. The kingdom has come. And he can say that, because he's the king. The king is now here. 
and so too is the kingdom that he has come to bring. Now we've seen the surprising nature of the kingdom of Jesus that in the in the early chapters, but it gets painted pretty clearly for us in this section that we're looking at today. It's not a kingdom that the people of Israel were expecting. The people of Israel were expecting your conventional-style kingdom, a throne in Jerusalem, all the other countries living in admiration and fear of what it is that the people of Israel have. They're expecting a national kind of kingdom. Israel, free from Roman occupation, their own king on the throne, and they all lived happily ever after. They're longing for the golden days of Israel, the days when King David and King Solomon were on the throne and and they had a pretty impressive kingdom. But it becomes obvious very quickly that Jesus has come to bring in a different kind of kingdom to that. Now what we see in chapters 4 and 5 of Mark's gospel, it's about what that kingdom looks like. The beginning of chapter 4, Jesus tells parables about what the kingdom will be like. And then at the end of chapter 4 and all the way through to the end of chapter 5, he shows them what the kingdom will be like. So Jesus begins uh, with what's probably the best-known parable from Jesus. You've got it there in Mark chapter 4, right at the very beginning. My guess is you've heard this uh, quite a few times before, the parable of the sower. The seed is going to be sown and uh, and this is how the kingdom will, will grow. And the message of that parable is pretty simple. There will be some people who reject the message. There will be some people who accept it perhaps for a while. And there will be others who grab onto it and hold it with both hands and don't want to let it go. Now, when we look at the parable and the events that have kind of happened on either side of this, it's almost as if Jesus is preparing the disciples for the kinds of responses that there will be to the kingdom. Some people are going to be willing to give up everything to be a part of that kingdom. Some people are going to walk away from their fishing boats and their nets. Others are going to reject Jesus outright. And the religious leaders have already started at the end of cha- or the beginning of chapter 3. They've already started plotting to kill Jesus. That's how opposed they are to this kingdom. The agricultural theme continues on in the next two parables, both parables that start with uh, these words, uh, chapter 4, verse 26. He also said, this is what the kingdom of, of God is like, and then jump down to verse 30, and he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? He's helping his disciples to get their head around this different kind of kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. The first parable is that the kingdom is going to grow and there will be no stopping it. It's going to grow because God is the one who makes it grow. And the second parable is quite similar about mustard seeds. When I was at uh, theological college, I uh, used to go and work at a a farm up near Forbes during the Christmas break just to earn a little bit of money and to do something that didn't involve a whole lot of thinking. And uh, the farmer in Forbes decided that he was going to try growing a crop of mustard. Now, that's how big mustard seeds are when you harvest them. Uh, So he had to get the harvest of the mustard. He'd modified machines to be able to get these tiny little seeds off. And then he was going to load it into the wheat bins that that were then going to take it off to where the market was. And uh, on the day that he started putting it in there, 
he didn't realise this, but there were tiny little holes around the bin, uh, not big enough for wheat to get out, but as soon as he started putting the mustard in there, it just started pouring like little streams all around. So one of the other farmers and I had to grab rolls of gaffer tape and run around looking for where these little holes were and put tape over it so that he could get most of his, uh, most of his harvest off to the market. Mustard seeds are tiny. And Jesus says to his, to his listeners, this kingdom might look small now, but wait, this will become huge. And let's face it, it sure didn't look like much in Jesus' day, did it? Jesus had a, a small group of fishermen, tax collectors and a bunch of other nobodies who were following him around. That's pretty much the extent of the kingdom before he goes to the cross. Now there's one thing that these three parables all have in common and it's about being small and growing. We have the sower with his seeds, we have the kingdom of God that's going to grow even when the farmer's asleep, it's going to continue to grow and the mustard seed which grows to be a great big bush. This is actually how big mustard seeds can get to. Uh, they're not, you're not harvesting them when they're like that, you're only harvesting them when they're about this high but uh, that's what they can actually grow to once you let them go. Now, any good teacher knows that uh, to help people understand things, you have to show them. You can explain to the class how a battery works, but it's far better to have a battery there and to demonstrate it to them. Uh, you can tell kids the theory of kicking a football, but it's far better to actually hold a football and show them how it's done. Well, starting in verse 35 of chapter 4, Jesus moves from talking about the kingdom to showing the kingdom. He moves from kingdom parables to kingdom miracles. And what we have here right through to the end of chapter 5 is four miracles in a row. Jesus calming the storm on the sea, then casting the demons out of a legion, then healing a sick woman and then finally raising Jairus's daughter. This is the only time in any of the four gospels that the writer puts four miracles in a row, four miracles together. And there's no coincidence that Mark has done this. If the par parables have emphasised the smallness of the kingdom and the growing nature of the kingdom, these miracles show us the power of the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. First miracle is about calming the storm. We're told that Jesus and the disciples had jumped into a boat to go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Part of the way into the journey, they are hit by a storm. And most of the guys in this boat are actually experienced fishermen and they are terrified by what they have encountered. They think they're going to drown. It's a terrifying thing, isn't it? The idea of getting caught at sea in the middle of a storm, no life jackets, probably can't even see how to get back to shore, to shore, let alone try and swim there. And amazingly, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. I can't help but think that that's a little bit of a nod to the book of Jonah, but I'm not totally sure why or how. They wake him up, and with a few simple words, Jesus calms the storm. He stands up and says to the wind and the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind and the waves do what they're told. And what Jesus does terrifies the disciples. 
possibly more than the storm did. And they're saying to themselves, who in the world is this guy? And the answer is, well, he's the one who has control over creation. Now, you've got to feel for the disciples, I reckon, because the next incident uh, is not a comfortable one for them. They make it back to dry land after their near-death experience out in the boat on the water. They get out of the boat, legs probably still feeling a little bit shaky as they make their way up on land. And no sooner do they climb out of the boat than a naked, demon-possessed man comes screaming down the hill toward them. This one-man welcoming party was well-known to the people who lived in that area. They had been tormented by this guy for years. He lives up among the graves and he screams out day and night. So what does Jesus do? Well, he effortlessly casts the demons out of this man and allows them to enter into a herd of pigs that are on the hillside and they run down and dive off the cliff into the water. The pigs racing off down the hill over the cliff and they drown. Well, it's to show the destructive power that Satan has and what Satan's intention was with this man to destroy him. These demons are slowly destroying him. Now, as you can imagine, news of what's just happened would have made it back to town pretty quickly. And what do we see when the people arrive? Verse 15 of chapter 5, I hope you can see it there in the Bible. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons, and here's the kicker, here's the important part, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And how do the people of the town respond to this? Are they lining up to shake Jesus' hand and say, thank you so much for what you've done for us? And for our town. No, they're terrified. In fact, they're so terrified, they plead with Jesus to leave, to get away from here. We don't want you around here. Now, I've got to say, I don't get this. Why would you want Jesus to leave? He's just solved the major problem in your town. Just solve the reason why yours hasn't become a tourist area. But I suppose it's the parable of the sower again, isn't it? Jesus has clearly demonstrated the authority and the power that he has, that he has power over Satan. He's rescued this town from this satanic force that's tormented them from ages. And how do they respond? Well, for whatever reason, they don't want what Jesus is selling. And sadly, Jesus does what the people ask him to do. He leaves. They've met the man who has power over Satan. They've met the man who can defeat not just one demon, but a legion of demons with just a few words. They've met the man who controls Satan and they ask him to leave. We have then two more miracles that are kind of interwoven blended together. A synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus, he comes to Jesus begging that Jesus would come and heal his daughter. It seems that not all the religious leaders are opposed to Jesus and what he's able to do. But while they're on the way, a woman who's been unwell for 12 years touches Jesus's robe in the hope that she might be healed as well. And Jesus stops to speak to whoever it was that touched the robe because he's not sure who it was. And it's kind of a, seems to me to be a sort of funny scene that unfolds here. 
Everywhere Jesus went, there were huge crowds of people. So it's not going to be surprising that someone touched him. I mean, imagine if you're walking down the street in this crowd, would you be saying, oh, hang on, someone touched me? No, just about everybody touched you. I mean, isn't that what the point is? So in this crowd of people, Jesus says to the disciples, who touched me? But Jesus knows what's happened. And he stops to talk to the woman. And I'm guessing Jairus' daughter, uh, Jairus is probably standing there saying, we're wasting precious time here. I've got a seriously sick child at home. Can't we keep this moving? But before that, Jesus has this conversation with the woman. But then comes the news that Jairus' daughter has died. Don't bother Jesus anymore. There's no point. But Jesus says to Jairus, you simply need to believe. You need to trust me. And in the same effortless way that he calmed the storm and cast out the demons and healed this woman, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. So there you have this collection of concrete examples of what the kingdom is like. Jesus has come to restore a broken world. And Jesus has power over creation, over Satan, over sickness, over death. And as we saw with the miracle in chapter 2, he also has the power to forgive sins. It's the complete package, isn't it? And what we see in these miracles is this incredible picture of hope. The kingdom that Jesus comes to bring bring in is one where all things are set right. And the miracles are really just a taste of what Jesus is going to be able to do. Jesus has come to bring in a kingdom where the fallen, broken world will be healed where Satan will be cast out and will have no hand, where sickness and death are no more. And we're part of that kingdom now because Jesus is our king. We can have confidence as we face problems and hardships that uh, that come come to us in this life. We can have confidence as we face sickness Confidence as we face death. Confidence because Jesus is king. There's no guarantee that that you will never face sickness again. There's no guarantee that you will never face a problem in your life. But you know the king who has control over all of those things. And when Jesus comes again, creation will be permanently put right. A new heaven and a new earth is what the Bible says. The struggles and groaning of creation will be over. There'll be no more floods or famines or bushfires or COVID or wars in the Ukraine. We long for the kingdom where Satan has no hand. We long for the kingdom where Satan is utterly defeated and never to influence things again. The kingdom Jesus brings is a kingdom where there is no sickness and no suffering and even death itself doesn't exist. I love the way that it gets described in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's the kingdom in its fullness. That's the kingdom for those who have their trust in Jesus. But until then, that kingdom may seem small and insignificant with less than 10% of our population professing any genuine faith in Jesus It may seem tiny, but the day will come when the greatness of the kingdom will be seen, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The day will come when we will be with our King, with our God, who will wipe every tear from our eyes and that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away.